Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. Uh, I feel really refreshed after uh, July 4th weekend, so that that did me good and been in a good mood, been super productive, and uh, this is the second podcast of the week, so uh, it's it's nice to uh, to crank these out and be in rhythm here with David. Absolutely. The uh, the good news of the weekend was that all of America participated in fireworks. Uh, I've been hearing that more and more and more now. It's like everyone experienced it. Because all of COVID firework shows were canceled, people just did it themselves, which sounds pretty fucking American if you ask me. Yeah, I, I feel like with a lot of the social unrest, uh, there's been hopes of, or there's been uh, glimpses of hope, especially with people standing up to the man. Um, but Aside from that, uh, this was a great interview. We had Cami Russo um, of Defiant News, uh, big time Ethereum journalist and, and advocate uh, and soon to be publisher of a new book about Ethereum. Yeah, so Cami's book is long awaited in the Ethereum world. It's coming out next week uh, on Tuesday, I think. I've got it pre-ordered. Uh, so super excited. As soon as it becomes available, uh, I believe she said the 14th. Uh, I will be downloading it and listening to it on Audible. However, if you prefer to read it, read it. It's called The Infinite Machine, which I think is just a fantastic name. Uh, So Cami just traveled the world and interviewed all the different Ethereum people from Ethereum's different, like, quote unquote, generations. She started all the way back in 2012 and went all the way up to almost the present, basically. Uh, And so we kind of asked her what that was like. Uh, the themes of the book, uh, the insights that she got, what it was like uh, interviewing all the different personalities in the space and give us some of the takes that you might not have gotten just by reading what is currently available. And uh, Bitcoiners, uh, if you're thinking this show is not for you, I would say definitely worth a listen. Uh, We dig into the DAO, we dig into the ICO. Uh, Cami is super fair and honest. Uh, I really think she took like more of a historian's take to this versus uh, trying to be biased in any way. So uh, worthwhile to kind of get her breakdown of those specific events in Ethereum's history. So that way you yourself can have an educated opinion. Before we get into the interview, we're going to talk about Alto IRA. Alto IRA is where if you are a tax genius, you would go to get Bitcoin and crypto assets into your tax deferred IRA. Uh, they are they plug into Coinbase, and so as a trader, you can trade on Coinbase and have your assets still remain in your alternative IRA through Alto IRA. So this is a great way to have a tax-advantaged crypto assets in your portfolio, in your retirement account. So you can go to altoira.com and sign up to start getting a tax-advantaged trading account especially Bitcoin, but they also have alternative assets as well, like gold. So you can go to altoira.com backslash POV crypto to use our signup code. That is how they know that we sent you there. So check them out. All right. Without further ado, Cami Rousseau. Cami Russo, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Cami, you have a book that is coming out soon. Will you tell us all about it? <laughs> I will. Um... Also, who are you and what's your story? We're gonna, yeah, we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. 
Okay, which should I answer? Yeah, first? so give it give us the very brief rundown on the book and then we'll we'll go into your background and how you came to be writing that book. Okay, cool. Um so my book is called The Infinite Machine. Mm -hmm. It will be published July 14th. That's next week. Um publisher is HarperCollins. And it's the first book on the history of Ethereum. So um I'm very excited to be telling this story for for the first time, um, at least in, in this format where you get the, the entire story in, in one place. Um, the, the focus of the book is the early days of Ethereum, you know, how it, it was created, um, how the idea came about, um, how Vitalik kind of rallied this ragtag, ragtag group of hackers and businessmen um, to make it happen and kind of the challenges they faced and um, all the craziness that it, it spurred. Okay, so how did you become part of the crypto world, the DeFi world, uh, and just be being an author in this space? Where, why, how did this idea come to you? Why does this space interest you? Just how did you become to be a writer? Because there's so few books about Ethereum, right? Um, perhaps yeah. like less than just three, uh, including this one. Uh, so how did you come to be a writer in Ethereum? Um, okay, so I'm a journalist by you know profession. Um, I, I was a Bloomberg reporter for eight years before leaving uh, and you know going full-time crypto in 2019. And it was at Bloomberg where I first wrote about Bitcoin in 2013. I was um, living in Argentina there. I was covering the Argentine markets. I lived there for four years. And as I was there, I was reporting on how people um, were being impacted by inflation and currency controls. And so I was writing about all the different ways people did uh, to get around that. And so Bitcoin was one of them. Um, and so I wrote that one story back then. And after that, I was just really interested in, in this space. Um, I really love this concept of an independent monetary system um, that couldn't be influenced by government or banks. Um, so after, after that, you know, I just kept uh, writing about markets. And then I, I was back in New York in 2017. And my job at Bloomberg then, I was a like macro markets blogger in, in this like internal uh, blog that Bloomberg has. And I had kind of the freedom to cover whatever looked interesting um, in markets. And 2017 obviously was huge for, for crypto. And so I started writing like blogging about crypto and, and there were very few uh, reporters at Bloomberg who who knew about it or were interested in it. So I also started uh, writing about crypto for the like general Bloomberg News Wire and you know Bloomberg TV Radio. There was like huge interest, obviously, um, at the time, and so it, it really kind of became almost almost my second job to cover crypto at Bloomberg uh, for 2017. And yeah, by the end of the year, it was just like completely down the rabbit hole, like really fascinated by the space um it was a great opportunity to cover it there like it gave me great access and i was really writing about it every single day so um it you know gave me a chance to learn about it really fast uh, and so at the end of the year i decided i really you know i wanted to write a book on on what happened um 
and I thought Ethereum was the most interesting story that hadn't been told. And it was really kind of mind-blowing to me that nobody had written this book. So it just felt like I really got a good opportunity to do it. So as a part of the Ethereum community, it's the early days of Ethereum are still pretty dark to me, right? So I came in in, in 2017. And, and so all of the, the genesis of this system, the only thing I really know about is like what is on Vitalik's blog where he talked about it, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm personally looking forward to uncovering the system that seems to kind of be obfuscated simply because no one really thought to record it or write it down. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that someone's finally doing that. So thank you. Yes. <laughs> so can you talk about like the timeframes that the book covers? Like when does it start and when does it end in relationship to Ethereum? Yeah. So the book really starts um, when Vitalik and Mihai Alisi create uh, Bitcoin Magazine together. And, you know, that's uh, like 2012. So and Christian here actually works for, for Bitcoin Magazine, which is really funny. Oh, oh, really? Right now? Yeah, I do work for Bitcoin Magazine. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So yeah, it's like very kind of OD uh, media in this space. I think, it, yeah, it was like the, the first like actual publication covering uh, Bitcoin. There was like no crypto back then. So um, yeah, so it was, I mean, that's when it starts and then it goes through, uh, you know, like Vitalik going across the world, visiting different Bitcoin projects, dropping out of university uh, to, to do this full time. Um, how MasterCoin uh, gave him the idea of a like, more generalized uh, blockchain. Um, then uh, the, the Miami house and, you know, like all, all of the early days up until I guess, um, I guess like the early days to me are like 2012 when Mihai and Vitalik met to like the ICO, um, like the like the Ethereum presale, and then uh, then I cover like from there to the DAO is like like the uh, like growing up like like growing pains of, of ethereum i guess um and then like the last part of the book is the ico boom and bust and the final chapter touches on like what DeFi is but i i really try to leave it uh purposely kind of ambiguous because obviously this this is really new and who knows you know what will happen but um yeah that's like the basic structure of it so Ethereum is, I think, hopefully, really young in comparison mm -hmm. to what we hope that it one day will be. So uh, I know that's probably pretty early to think about it because your, your book is still yet to be published. It'll come out next week. But, uh, you know, the future of Ethereum is still pretty unwritten. Are, are you thinking about continuing this, uh, this uh, just history of Ethereum with more uh, writing in the future? Mm, that's a good question. Um... I'd love to. I mean, you know, I, I would love an, an, an idea for, for a second book. Um, I think, you know, if I, I, I do believe that it's early days for Ethereum and it still has a long road ahead of it um, as, you know, the network and, and the community. So, you know, depending on, on what happens and if what happens is book worthy, which, you know, it probably will be. So, yeah, maybe there will be a a second book so uh 
the Ethereum developing world is known as, or at least um, what Hudson is known as, is like the Ethereum cat herders, right? Like trying to herd all the cats to get them into the place so we can plan this thing. And, and the fact that this is like, uh, especially at the very beginning, this is no one's job, except not, now people do have jobs working on Ethereum, but it's no one's job to actually create this world. I, I kind of wonder what it was like to herd all of these various different people to interview them mm -hmm. for this book. What was it like, like tracking all the different personalities down to, to try and, and you know, uh, get some insights from them? Yeah, it was uh, definitely interesting. So um, I think like, it, it really helped um, that whenever I spoke with someone, they in later introduced me to other people. So that was like one way uh, I, I, I got to, I, I got to all these uh, different characters. And another way was I, I really, you know, kind of stopped the Ethereum community around the world for, for two years. Um, so I, I went to like, bunch of different hackathons. I went to uh, DevCon Prague and uh, and uh, the DevCon in, in, in Japan. Um, you know, went to uh, Waterloo, uh, San Francisco, um, what else? Uh, Berlin, like Sug, like a bunch of like Ethereum places <laughs> or like places where, where I, I could meet uh, the, the community. And um, this really helped me get a sense of like who these people are, like just the color, uh, meet them in person. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was really interested in, in telling the story like first, firsthand too, uh, like because most of the story I, I was told through, you know, other people and who, who were there at the time. Um, but this, this was at least one piece that I, I, I could kind of get myself, just like knowing the people directly. So, um, yeah, I, I made an, an, an effort to, to do that. So that really did help me kind of herd all these cats. <laughs> so Camila, kind of like going into, um, the story of Ethereum, I guess there's a lot of positive and negative things, uh, being said about Ethereum pretty much all the time. A lot of people will see the ICO is immaculate while other people see it as um, pre-mined shitcoin. Like mm -hmm. what's kind of like, what's your angle? Like you, you, you know, you've gone deep on Ethereum, like what, and, and its history, like how would you characterize uh, its history and um, what are some of the interesting stories that you discovered? Yeah. Um, well, that's a, it's a lot. It's a big question. I think maybe just taking, um, it, it's hard because it's it's you know you can't I, I can't I wouldn't be able to characterize it as like one thing because there, there are different pieces of the story and I think you know some of it you know were um, were good some of it were bad I think um, the ICO itself is one of the things that's criticized the most in Ethereum <clears throat> or like uh, about Ethereum and honestly like. I don't know, uh, after speaking with people uh, who were there and, and reading and listening to, to people who, who disagree about like how, how this was done, I, I honestly don't, don't, I still don't see really anything wrong with um, what a, 
about the Ethereum pre-sale because like talking with people who were building Ethereum in, in the very early days, it was very much like a startup where all of these developers and like from developers to designers to marketers, like you had like a, a, a big group of people who were inspired enough by the idea of Ethereum to drop everything and go live in a house in Switzerland in the middle of the woods with no salary. Um, like many of them broke up with their girlfriends, like gave away, away their pets, like left their jobs um, to do this thing and live together with a bunch of strangers um, for like months without knowing whether they'd ever get paid. You know, a lot of them were uh, putting, you know, debt on their credit cards to make this happen. And it was with the kind of unwritten promise that one day they'd get the token of this network, which they all really believed was like the next Bitcoin, like the next big thing in crypto. Um, so if you view it that way, these people were really putting skin in the game to make Ethereum happen. So I do think it was fair to compensate them with um, a token of the network. And um, beyond that, like, I think Ethereum is different from like many of the projects that did ICOs in that the, the token wasn't like, it, it, it really, it, it got issued with the first block. Like it wasn't tradable before the, the network was, was live. Like people gave their Bitcoins and they had an Ethereum address in, in return, um, but they only got ETH when Ethereum went live. So it was clear, you know, it wasn't something, it wasn't like as much about like speculating with a worthless token as it was people, you know, really buying into um, Ethereum is, you know, it's actually going to be shipped and launched because otherwise like you wouldn't get the coin. Um, so, so yeah, and it was the expectation that, you know, like the early team members would get uh, part of the tokens, but then there would be proof of work and with time, um, their share of the pie would be diluted and this is what's happening. So um, that's kind of my, my take on like the whole ICO criticism. And, you know, like we've, there's different reports saying that decentralization in, in Ethereum is actually pretty similar to decentralization in Bitcoin. So if you judge by just the outcome of the pre-mine versus starting out just as proof of work, the outcome is pretty much, you know, the same um, in terms of like decentralization of holders. So, so that's that's kind of like tackling the like the main criticism to to Ethereum. But then there's like other things which I think could have been handler hand, handled better. And um, you know, I, I I don't think that's I don't think if they're if they're that well well known about how like messy the whole thing was um, in at, at, like especially in the very early days, like nobody knew what they were doing, um, and so that was true also with like accounting, finances, taxes. Like I, I spoke with um, Ming Chang, who was like you know heading the Ethereum Foundation back then. And her stories were just hilarious, just like coming into this house and like finding paperwork stacked in the kitchen, you know, <laughs> like having to go like call people up because like receipts didn't match. And, you know, it's, it's tough to say if there was like actual wrongdoing, 
um, or it was just like messy. Um, maybe, I don't know. I, 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 I tend to think it was probably, you know, they were just like really messy. Um, but everything was kind of really kind of done in a haphazard way at, at the start. I kind of want to visit the Tao. Like, what's your, as, as kind of like a historian with this book, like, what is your interpretation of how that all went down? Mm. Um, let's see, the Tao. Do, do you think uh, yeah. that the commonly held opinions or commonly um, assumed truths as to how the Tao was, is perceived to have gone, is that actually reflected in what you've learned as you've learned about it? Yeah. Yeah, I think what's like commonly known as like how the Tao happened is true. Um, according to my reporting, um, you know, I, I, I tried to interview most of the main like characters there, and um, and and yeah, basically, you know, uh, there was this um, this bug in the code. Uh, some people kind of alerted to. Uh, similar bugs in the days leading up to to, to the hack. Um, nobody found like the actual the actual thing. Then uh, they realized uh, that that was being drained, um, and this like uh, white hat hacker group, the Robin Hood group, got together to try to stop it. And in the meantime, you know, people started talking about a soft fork or a hard fork, and you know. Um, they decided on a soft fork, but then there was a bug in the soft fork <laughs> that, that they, they had designed, so they had to just like scrap it quickly and, and go for the hard fork. Um, they, there was like some attempt to, to have this like be a consensus decision. Um, I'm not sure whether that was actually the case. Like there was a vote, but really few people voted. There were like some Twitter polls, but it's like, Hard to say, like how much of the human community they actually represented. I think you know, if if somebody wanted to criticize um, Vitalik and and maybe kind of like uh, like the inf influential Ethereum people at the time for you know deciding amongst like a small group of people to do the, the hard fork, I think that's probably true because I think it was really hard to get like an actual like broad based. Uh, vote on what every ether holder actually wanted. So I think that's a that's a uh, an accurate kind of criticism that Ethereum um, gets. Um, and and then from from that, like yeah, the the whole thing of the hard fork, uh, you know, happening successfully, but then like the Ethereum Classic chain uh, rising from from the dead. And um, you know, I, I I kind of spoke with. Um, Vitalik and um, Alex Van de Sand and some of the people who were together in Ithaca, uh, they were at this kind of like hackathon um, at, uh, I'm spacing on the name of the university right now, Cornell, at Cornell University. Um, so they were together when, when this all happened and and just like the huge surprise of, of seeing the old Ethereum chain uh, rise from the dead and then like some Bitcoiners calling Vitalik uh, kind of to rub it in his face, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah, and, and I think like also like um, Vitalik was really criticized at this point for 
for trying to stop um, ether trading as well. And I think, you know, I think it was like such a, a dramatic time for, for Ethereans um, that I, I think Vitalik is still kind of conflicted by, by what, what to think and by like his actions at the time. Um, because I, he obviously like does believe in like decentralization, but it was like, you know, it, it was the, his, his like baby was about to get killed, you know? So <laughs> it was kind of that uh, reaction, like stop trading. Um, which I, I think it's a kind of a fair criticism to make that maybe he shouldn't have stepped in, um, and, and said that, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've answered that question, but yeah. I mean, I, I thought that that was great. Um, I guess the, the appropriate follow-up is, is this currently the state of Ethereum? Can, if a DAO hack happened today, would people be able to coordinate around, uh, you know, changing funds in a certain address, you know, like that's kind of like the big deal is like changing amounts in an address, mm -hmm. I think around a hard fork. Like, do you think that that's the Ethereum that exists today? Like that's still the same Ethereum with the same power structures or has that kind of, has Ethereum grown out of that, um, that kind of weak stage? Yeah. Um, so I asked Vitalik this, this question, like what would happen if, like, if the DAO happened today? And, you know, he, he said he, like, he believes that Ethereum has matured enough that the DAO, like a hard fork, like, like that wouldn't happen again um because like it wouldn't be it, it would be a lot harder to get this kind of rough consensus that they they thought they they did get back then where you know like all the like main like uh developers and like uh, more more active ethereum people agreed on 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 one thing um and two, because at the time, like the DAO was a, a, a big amount of, of like was holding a, a, like a significant amount of ether um, of like total ETH. And so it would be a lot harder for one single project to, to have that, um, that way in, in Ethereum right now. So I think, you know, I think Ethereum has matured enough that it would be really hard to see that again. And, and we kind of saw it with um, the, the locked uh, parity funds. Um, you know, that was one case where um, one group was, was uh, proposing a hard forward to get these uh, stuck funds out, um, but it just like didn't, it didn't gain enough traction uh, because the community is larger and, and because the, the amount of funds uh, weren't as, as big relative to like total ether as the, the, the DAO funds were. Cami, in your book, do you ever attempt to figure out the answer to the question, who hacked the DAO? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to get the DAO hacker. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so. did you try in the book? I did. I mean, I in, in my reporting, um, I, I ask people, I, you know, try to get leads, but yeah. And, you know, honestly, it wasn't, you know, it's, it is like three chapters of, of my book, but it wasn't the, the main focus of the book either. So mm -hmm. I didn't spend that much time trying to find them.
Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I wonder if anyone does actually know. Well, maybe, maybe he got away. Um, so as this book progresses and as um, you go through like the years starting at 2012, then going all the way into like 2017, 2018, how would you say like the, the culture around Ethereum developed and grew and changed from the different interviews of the different people from the different time periods of Ethereum? Um, so, yeah, I think there was a, a big change in in like both the ethereum team like if you if you can call it that or like ethereum people um like people building ethereum and and the culture in the beginning the ethereum co-founders they weren't even i mean they they weren't in agreement on how ethereum should be structured at all like um there was this one uh, group who wanted a foundation, um, like a completely non, like non-profit um, take on, on Ethereum. And then the other, there was another uh, faction of Ethereans um, who wanted to build a for-profit company. So, and, and they were debating uh, these two points for, for a while, like, should we be the crypto Google or should we be the crypto Mozilla? Um, so I think, you know, that's, that really highlights how in how much the, the culture has changed because like right now, like nobody would think of, of having like a, like of Ethereum being a company. Right. But in the very early days that was actually up for discussion. And it wasn't, it wasn't very, very clear. Like even, you know, um, it, at one point, like it was, it, they, they really did get pretty close to becoming a company. Like they, they had actually, you know, rounded up lawyers. They were ready to sign papers and everything, um, but then decided against it. So um, that's clearly evolved into, no, Ethereum is, is like a public utility, right? Um, and, the 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 team itself it is like one of the things that uh, surprised me the most about doing this re research is how much it has changed like from the the early group of ethereum co-founders the only one that's left really is vitalik like actually you know working and like building ethereum like all the the other like co-founder like charles hoskinson anthony diorio uh, Gavin Wood, Mihai, Jeff Wilkie. Um, I don't know if I'm missing someone, but you know, everyone's everyone's left to do their own thing. Um, so that was like pretty pretty surprising. And um, and beyond that, I think you know it, it's interesting to see how the 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 community like this once they, they decided to go in, into this like nonprofit route. And they decided to be this like agnostic, like flexible platform for anyone to build apps on top of it. Then it really became this network that just attracted um, hackers and like geeks and you know like young people in the internet. Um, so that that's really what shaped the culture that we see today, um, and and that makes it kind of different from Bitcoin because you know a lot of the the, the people I I talk. I talked to when I asked him, like, why did you 
um, get into Ethereum, most of them got into it because they were interested in building stuff that they couldn't do in Bitcoin. Uh, for Bitcoin, it was, you know, it's mostly like they got into Bitcoin because they like the sound money aspect, like um, because they're like, you know, libertarian leaning. But for Ethereum, it's more like they got into it because of the tech. So you get like a like a more diverse kind of community. Um, and yeah, like like just like young millennial hackers. Um, so I think that kind of culture has like only uh, strengthened. Do, does the concept of tribalism between Bitcoin and Ethereum show up in your book? And if so, can you talk about that? Yeah, kind of, because, you know, for, for Vitalik, that was, that was part of his decision to not build on, on Bitcoin at, at first, because um, Vitalik wasn't wasn't sure whether Ethereum should be its own blockchain or whether it should be a, a project built on top of an, uh, another blockchain. So he did consider um, building on top of Bitcoin, but he was like turned off by that idea because he saw like all this infighting um, about like tiny changes, like um, being able to add uh, more, more data, uh, to the blocks or, or at, at increased block size, like all these different things which would make Bitcoin more suitable for a project like, like Ethereum um, were like, like really had, had really strong opposition in, in the Bitcoin community. So that's why he decided to not build on, on Bitcoin and Ethereum was going to be built on top of another blockchain called Primecoin at first. Um, but then, you know, he saw that he had kind of inspired enough uh, people that he would be able to build um, a separate blockchain. So um, I think like that's one one point where this kind of tribalism uh, you can see you know how that was like a turn off for for Vitalik. And then there's like other other places um, for for other Ethereans like for. Um, for Rune, I think, like for a couple of like early people building on, on Ethereum, um, just like the, they mentioned like being kind of turned off by by uh, this like, by the Bitcoin community and like politics and in the Bitcoin, Bitcoin community. I mean, Ethereum kind of was spawned at, in the beginning-ish of the block size debate, which is, you know, arguably the most contentious thing in, in Bitcoin history. Um, curious if something like that will happen again. But when it comes to Ethereum moving forward, as it continues to grow as a project, we kind of discussed how, um, you know, it like the DAO wouldn't, the, the DAO hard fork would not have been, you know, probably wouldn't be possible today. Um, you know, Ethereum itself is becoming, you know, kind of less and less flexible as as it um, you know expands and becomes bigger and more stakeholders kind of latch in, um, do you see at some point like Ethereum itself becomes uh, you know inflexible or turns off people because you know they can't get what they want out of it? Um, well, like what are your thoughts on on that evolution? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think it could be. You know, um, I think maybe that's already happening with. Uh, developers going to all, all the like other smart contract platforms. It could be because um, it's true that 
you know, so, okay, so I mentioned this like diverse, uh, like colorful Ethereum community, um, but it does like have some, some like um, standards or like dogmas that, that it, it likes to, to keep, right? Like, um, I don't know, like some people, like I think a good example is uh, the governance or like lack thereof of, of like a structured on-chain governance for, for Ethereum. Uh, I think that's um, a feature that uh, like most like core devs uh, want to keep and, and they like this process of making um, decisions in, in their calls and like EIPs. Um, but, you know, that's some, some people would like a, a, a more structured governance process. So, so they will go to other, other blockchains. And, and the same goes for, for other um, features um, that, you know, of, of, of Ethereum. I think it's, it's natural that as the, the, the chain grows and the community grows that it'll, it, it'll become less flexible and, and more useful for like a specific uh, niche and, and a specific group of people. Who's your favorite person to interview while you uh, were writing this book? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think I'd have like one favorite person, but, um, let's see, I think like, or, or a memorable interview. Yeah. So let's see. Um, I really enjoyed interviewing Gavin Wood. Um, I, you know, I got to kind of meet him at his uh, Berlin apartment and he showed me like a bunch of like Ethereum, like memorabilia. Like he showed me his like early Ethereum business card. Um, he showed me this like bottle of whiskey that Anthony Diario got him after they like made up after a fight. Uh, so that was fun. Um, and, you know, he also like took like an afternoon off and like told me his whole life story. That was like pretty amazing. Um, and a really fun interview was um, with texture. Uh, like he, he was, uh, he's a really colorful character and has some great like early days Ethereum stories. Uh, and I love his story when, you know, he, he describes like being very kind of like a very kind of crypto skeptic. Um, and he had like this roommate who was like really kind of uh, pushing him to learn about Bitcoin and, and listen to this podcast and whatever. And so one day he, he had this like edibles um, business and he like, he took a candy and had to like drive to see his like girlfriend an hour away in San Francisco. And he remembers like putting on the, the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast while he was like basically high and just like having this like vision of like how the future would be on the blockchain. <laughs> so. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> cool, Camila, Cami, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, excited to see the book come out and excited uh, that you joined the ranks of authors amount, uh, amongst them. I think that's uh, uh, a shining badge. So uh, I hope it's the first Thank of you. many 
Uh, interesting to learn about the history of Ethereum uh, on the pod. I'm mo- mostly the Bitcoin guy on POV crypto, but mm-hmm. um, it is interesting to hash it out with someone who really dug deep. So uh, oh. I appreciate it. Of course. No, it was fun conversation. Thanks so much. Uh, Cami, if they want to pre-order the book or perhaps if they're listening to this episode late, uh, buy the book, where should they go? Um, well, on Amazon, just search for The Infinite Machine. Um, I have the, the, a link high up on, on my Twitter as well if you want to go there um, to the like HarperCollins website and like look at all the, the different uh, sellers. So yeah, please pre-order. And then where is your Twitter? At Cami Russo. Awesome. Thanks, Cammy. Thank you. You guys can follow the pod at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless Date, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Christian? You can find me at CK underscore Snarks. Remember, five-star reviews, like, and subscribe, all the good things. Awesome. Thanks, Cammy. Thank you.